globally a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away. You have 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night who could be fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. I set out into the streets to try and find someone to give my food to. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. I went back to my apartment and I resorted to cross-border smuggling. And that was when I thought, this is crazy, the lengths I'm going to to avoid food waste. Why isn't there an app for that? As a founder, you just need to tell everybody that you ever meet what you're doing and why. And I could very quickly categorize people into three buckets. So there were, we're living in an age of selfish altruism. People want to do the right thing, but there's got to be something in it for them. So we've gone really, really deep on behavioral psychology and learning all of those different tips and tricks that exist that you can use to nudge people to take the behavior that you want. Over the years, we have experimented a lot in terms of our messaging and positioning. And I would say that one of the major learnings we've had is, so in the early days, our early adopters hated food waste, therefore they didn't generate much food waste. So we were a food sharing app with no food, which I'm sure you'll agree is pretty useless. So how we solved that was we said, well, let's take the people who have loads of spare time and not much food waste and match them up with the businesses that have Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. In this podcast, you will learn from entrepreneurs who have already found product market fit and are scaling up fast. We discuss their challenges and the strategies they have applied to make things work. Think of it as a masterclass about business and product innovation, growth marketing, and leadership. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help mission-driven companies exceed their revenue objectives with growth marketing, product-led growth, and LinkedIn personal branding strategies. She has built successfully one of the hardest things you can build as an entrepreneur. Recently, I was listening to Gary Vee, who advised someone to not start a marketplace because of the chicken and egg problem. Without chicken, there is no egg. But without egg, there is no chicken. In this case, people looking for an item want to join your marketplace if you have a lot of things to sell or to share on it. But sellers or people who want to share something only want to join your marketplace if you have a lot of people searching for something. So how do you manage to attract both sides in your marketplace? With who do you start? How? And how do you attract investors too? Today, we're going to talk about this with Tessa Clark, the founder of Olio. Olio is a local sharing app for passing on things you don't need to people who live nearby. From food and clothes to books and toys, it helps turn your useless into someone else useful and help fight waste. In numbers, Olio, it's 7 million users around the world, 96 million portions of food shared, 86,000 volunteers rescuing unsold food from local businesses and 25,000 ambassadors spreading the word. Today, we are going to talk about three topics. How to drive consumer behavior change at scale, how to define a new business model, and how to fundraise as a female co-founded business. Tessa, thanks very much for being here today. How are you? Very good, thank you. Happy to be here. I'm very happy to and excited to talk about all the, the interesting topics from today. This is mission first. So can you tell us a bit more about what's your, what's your mission? So our mission is to solve the climate crisis by solving the problem of waste in our homes and local communities. And how we do that is we connect people with their neighbors so they can give away rather than throw away their spare food and other household items. And you can now also lend and borrow and buy and sell household items as well. Oh, that's great to know. 
which context do we need to be aware of to understand where you are right now? Going back to your past experience, your career, your childhood, what explains how you are right now in such a position with such a high commitment to change the world for the better with your company? So for both me and my co-founder, Sasha, our drive and our passion and conviction for Olio is very much rooted in our childhoods. So I am a farmer's daughter. So I grew up on my parents' farm in North Yorkshire in the north, northeast of the UK. And along with my two younger brothers, we were the family workforce and our parents certainly did put us to work. And our weekends, evenings, holidays were very, very much characterized by just hard work, honestly. And as a result of that upbringing, we grew up with a pathological hatred of food waste. So I remember sort of very vividly, I think when I was 10 and my brothers were eight and six, our summer holiday project was to hoe a nine acre field of cabbages. So to weed essentially a nine acre field of cabbages. And you've only got to spend your summer doing that to realize how precious food is and to grow up with a intense dislike of food waste. I was always one of those kids who didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I knew that I didn't want to be a farmer or a farmer's wife. And so I really focused very hard on my schoolwork. I went to Cambridge University, studied social and political sciences, and that was where I really developed a keen appreciation of the power and the intersection of people and technology and behavior change and systems and economics and politics and philosophy, et cetera. But I still was none the wise about what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I went and pursued a fairly classic corporate career and did that for almost 20 years. And it was really through an experience that I had eight years ago now when I was moving country and the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food and obviously, I've given you the backstory as to why I would not agree to throw away some uneaten food. And so much the irritation of the removal men, I set out into the streets to try and find someone to give my food to. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. I went back to my apartment and I resorted to cross-border smuggling. And that was when I thought, this is crazy, the lengths I'm going to to avoid food waste. Why isn't there an app for that? And that was really the light bulb moment for Olio. And that's why I'm sitting here talking to you today about Olio, but another crucial step that really gave both Sasha and I the conviction and the fire in our bellies to found Olio was the market research that we did before setting up the company. So after I'd had that experience of not wanting to throw away food, we researched the problem of food waste and what we discovered truly stunned and horrified us. We learned that globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away. Alongside that, you have 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night who could be fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And as if all that weren't bad enough, we learned that if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA, China. And that's because a landmass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that's never eaten. And then we have another 2 billion people due to join the planet in, uh, by 2050. And in order to feed us all, we need to increase global food production by over 50%. And today, we're not, we don't know how we're going to achieve that. So we went through that journey of discovery. We were horrified by what we discovered. We couldn't believe that this wasn't on the front page of every single newspaper. And that was what made us really commit to founding Olio. 
and bringing our food sharing app to the world. So one of the biggest struggle when you start a marketplace like that is this story of the chicken and egg problem. So mm -hmm. could you bring us back to the beginning? What yeah. are the first steps to, to get that kicked off properly? I was smiling as you read the intro because absolutely that is the foundational conundrum for any marketplace business. Um, so how we went from sort of idea to where we are today, we went through a couple of steps. So the first thing we did after we researched the problem of food waste was to run a proof of concept using WhatsApp. So we knew that food waste was a big problem on paper. We knew it was a problem from some other research we'd done that people cared about, but we didn't necessarily know that it was um, that people would actually kind of take that next step in our hypothesis and share food with a total stranger. And so we wanted to test that hypothesis before investing our life savings building an app. So we invited a small group of people who all lived close to one another but didn't know one another and didn't know us to take part in an experiment where we put them on a WhatsApp group for two weeks. And then if anyone had any food to share, they could post it in that WhatsApp group. And we waited with bated breath for a whole weekend, I think, after <laughs> launching it, waiting for someone to share some food. And on the Monday morning, thankfully, they did. And thereafter, we actually had quite a lot of food shared via that WhatsApp group over the two-week period. And at the end of that, we did a debrief with all of those participants. And they each said to us, first of all, you absolutely have to build this. If this podcast helps you, please do me a huge favor and click on the follow button on your podcast platform. It helps to grow this podcast faster and to convince the most impactful entrepreneurs of the world to join me in these interviews so that you and other entrepreneurs can learn from them. Secondly, it only needs to be better, slightly better than a WhatsApp group. And third, they said, how can we help? And that third bit was absolutely crucial to enabling us to solve that chicken and egg conundrum for when we very first launched. Because we asked them if they would become Olio ambassadors. And so what that meant is we asked them the day before the app was due to launch, if they could raid all of their cupboards and post all of their spare food onto the app. And in parallel, we had spent the summer pounding the pavements of North London, giving out free food on the street and signing people up who wanted to know about when this free food sharing app was going to be launched. And so we restricted the initial launch of Olio to just five postcodes in North London. And we got about 2,000 people signed up who were interested in using the app. And we got these 12 ambassadors who were going to post all of their spare food onto the app. And so what that meant is that sort of on launch day, we had 12 people plus ourselves who'd added lots of listings. We then sent an email to those 2,000 people. And then what happened was we had a couple of weeks of when sort of just the ambassadors were sharing with the ambassadors. Then we had our first sort of ambassador to stranger share, as we called it. And then we had a truly magical moment where we had two total strangers share some food via the app. So that was how we got going in the very early days. And by restricting the geography to just five postcodes, it made it much more manageable. It meant that we could much more easily balance that supply and demand. Uh, how many people did you have on the, on the WhatsApp group, you said? You start 12, with? 12 people. 12 people who didn't know each other. And the people who are sharing the food are the people who are also getting it then. Well, so the 12 people from the WhatsApp group, they added their spare food to the app. And then some of those 12 people requested some of the food from some of the other 12. 
But then over time, the 2,000 people that we'd emailed, some of them started requesting some of the food and then some of them started adding their own food and they started and other people from the email list started requesting it that was how we got that flywheel started so big advice is to restrict the the area as much as possible do you have another like learning during that phase that you would advise any other like entrepreneurs starting a, a marketplace if you're doing something hyper local you definitely need to restrict the geography if it's not hyper local you still need to find a way to restrict the numbers of people so you can manage very, very manually that balance of supply and demand yourself. Um, the other thing many marketplaces need to do, and indeed we did some of this as well ourselves in the early days, you sort of seed supply. So you put your own listings onto the app. So um, Sasha and I were regularly putting lots of listings of our own on the app just to kickstart that sharing experience for people. Um, so restrict it seed supply. And then the third thing is ask for help. So as I have already explained, we had these 12 brand ambassadors who played an absolutely crucial role in solving that chicken and egg problem for us. And they did that because they were really passionate about our mission. We can go to the, the first part of the, the topic we wanted to tackle today, which is how to drive consumer behavior change at scale. What's your advice on this part? We somewhat naively hoped that we would build this very efficient marketplace solution that could solve this multi-billion pound problem and everybody would discover our solution and start using it and we would see this sort of Instagram style hockey stick growth chart uh, mm -hmm. and that fortunately did not happen. Uh, and over the years, we have experimented a lot in terms of our messaging and positioning. And I would say that one of the major learnings we've had is that we have flipped on its head the messaging hierarchy for Olio. So in the early days, we had a messaging hierarchy which really reflected our motivation. So we talked a lot about the planet. We then talked a little bit about the people, so the community impact of Olio. And we didn't really talk that much at all about the personal impact. What we have since learned is to flip that messaging hierarchy on the head. And actually, we now lead off our comms with the personal, sort of what's in it for you. So we believe we're living in an age of selfish altruism, which is people want to do the right thing, but there's got to be something in it for them. So we lead off with the personal. And for Olio, the personal is it just feels really great to share. It feels great to declutter. It feels great not to have to throw stuff in the bin. It feels great to connect with a neighbor. So we lead off with the personal. We then layer on some messaging about the people, so the community angle and the community benefit. And then we just have this sort of magical fairy dust sprinkling of planet communications um, layered on the top. Because for most people, it is actually fairly intuitive and fairly obvious that what we're doing is good for the planet. So we don't need to really lean on that. So really kind of looking at your messaging hierarchy and leading with the personal and the selfish altruism has been absolutely critical for driving consumer behavior change. The second thing I would say that we have done is we've gone really, really deep on behavioral psychology and learning all of those different tips and tricks that exist that you can use to nudge people to take the behavior 
that you want. So whether it be about anchoring or commitment bias or any of the other course of 10 or 15 behavioral psychology levers, we have experimented with and pulled almost all of them through our communications, our messaging and our language, and also through the product experience as well. So we're always looking at how we can harness behavioral psychology for good, for a positive, powerful impact. And in terms of the models that we have used, the behavior change models that we've used, perhaps the most powerful model we've encountered is the EAST model, which has been developed by the Behavioral Insights team. And the EAST model says that if you want to change consumer behavior, then you need to make change that you're asking people to do. You need to make it easy. You need to make it attractive. You need to make it social. And you need to make it timely. Um, and in our experience and through looking at the sustainability and the climate movement more broadly, I think we've really failed on making climate solutions look attractive. And we've really failed on making them appear social. And it is really, really, really important because through all of the tests that we have run, it seems to us that the biggest determinant as to whether someone will take action or not is if they believe that other people are also taking action. So it's really, really important to however you can to reassure people that this is something that lots of other people like you are doing, that this is normal. This is modern mainstream behavior. Very interesting. And the, the difficult part is, of course, to, to have people starting, but that's what you managed to do with, well, your, it, it, with, it, with your app. It, it is. And what you've got to do is not sort of boil the ocean. What you've got to do to get people starting is you've got to just really, really zoom in on the people, the early adopters. So a, a, a book that I'd highly recommend to everybody is the uh, Jeffrey Moore's classic sort of book called Crossing the Chasm. And what you need to do is really, really laser focus on your early adopters. So these are people who are absolutely obsessed by your mission. They're super excited that you exist in the world. And I can remember in the very early days of Olio, you know, as a founder, you just need to tell everybody that you ever meet what you're doing and why. And I could very quickly categorize people into three buckets. So there were the early adopters who, the minute I told them about Olio, their eyes lit up. They were sort of giving me a hug whilst downloading the app over my <laughs> shoulder. They, they were just couldn't get enough of it. They were super excited. Then there was another bunch of people who intellectually and philosophically understood what we were doing and why, and they really liked the sound of it. But I could tell they weren't going to do anything anytime soon, but they were supportive. And then there was a third group, sort of the laggards, who no matter how many hours I spoke to them about the climate crisis and how big it is and how real it is and how we all need to take action, <laughs> nothing that I said could convince them to get with the program. And I quickly learned you know, as much for efficiencies and sort of my own mental health to just forget about the laggards, stop trying to convince those folks. And indeed, don't spend any time on the people who are supportive from the sidelines the only people you need to focus on in the early days are the obsessives, the early adopters. And they are people who will do wildly irrational things to support you. So for example, when Olio was only available for in five postcodes in North London, we had people who were so supportive of what we were doing that they would travel from South London to North London 
via the tube to pick up surplus food to be able to participate. And they played a really, really important role in terms of providing a great experience to those people in North London who had taken that leap of faith and added an item of food to the Olio app from their home. So you really, really have to obsess about the early adopters. And if you haven't got those obsessive early adopters, then you will really, really struggle to get your business to scale. And I think I often encounter founders who have this beautiful vision of the world. You know, when everybody does this, the world will be wonderful. And that is absolutely true. But the problem is that no one cares enough to take those early steps to support you on the journey when your product is really crappy and the user experience isn't very good. And I realize, and I have this sort of mental model in my head that I call stepping stones of forgiveness. And by that, I mean, you focus on those early adopters who are very, very forgiving they start using your product, they get you, give you feedback, you improve your product as time elapses, and then the next group of users come along who are less forgiving than the first lot, but infinitely more forgiving than the next lot. They use your product, give you user feedback, time elapses. Then the next group come along, less forgiving than all the lot that have been before them, more forgiving than everyone else. And you just have to slowly sort of work your way up these stepping stones of forgiveness, and you need to zone out all the noise from the naysayers and the laggards and the people who you're just not focusing on at that point in time. And that is how you build up to scale. Do you have any advice on where to find these early adopters at, at so the beginning? For us, we were extremely manual in terms of how we did that. So we knew that we needed to identify the early adopters within London we chose very carefully those six those um, six postcodes or five postcodes. I'm losing track now. The five or six postcodes that we first <laughs> launched Olio in. Um, so it was in North London, so Crouch End, Finsbury Park, that sort of area. Um, and we just knew from our knowledge of London that the type of people who lived there were more interested in sustainability. They were more interested in community. It was just a, a natural and sensible place to start. And then within that, when we were handing out the free food on the weekend, encouraging people to sign up to be the first to know about the food sharing app, we spoke to thousands of people. And through that process, we learned very, very quickly the people who were in that first camp, the super passionate people. And we learned that if someone was female, they were more likely to be really excited about what we we're doing than male. We learned that if they cycled everywhere, they were probably more into Olio than if they didn't. If they were vegan or vegetarian, they were probably more into it. If they were a certain age range. And so through doing that very, very manual process of just talking to people on the street corners, we were able to narrow down and understand what our early adopter looked like. That then meant that we could then share and promote about Olio in lots of vegan and vegetarian Facebook groups and in um, local community groups in North and East London. And yeah, that was really how we sort of cracked that one. Yeah, so I think it's very important to always start manually and reach out to people um, directly because that's, that's a mistake. A lot of founders go only digital in that case and skip that step. And this is where you yep. learn. It's manual work that doesn't scale. But Correct. that's the one that, that makes it reach a product market fit quickly. 
Correct. And and it's very counterintuitive for a lot of founders because you're dreaming and fantasizing about millions or hundreds of millions of people using your product. <laughs> and so you think about scale, scale, scale. But in the early days, you need to forget about scale. You need to do as much stuff manually as you possibly can. And that often involves you kind of getting out from behind your desk and it involves you talking to real human beings, which can be a really uncomfortable experience for many of us, but it's something that you have to do as an early stage founder. And I really recommend the book, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. It's a very short read, but a really powerful one, which teaches you how to interact with prospective customers in a way that is not biased and leading. Hey, before you jump to the next part of this episode, one quick info. If you don't want to miss the best strategies for entrepreneurs like you, sign up for my newsletter with a link in the description. You will receive a summary of advice from each episode, get personal recommendations based on your startup stage and industry. And you will also receive my most useful growth and LinkedIn marketing strategies. Just follow the link in the description to sign up. Back to the next part of this interview. User research. Um, thank you very much for these advice. Let's talk about the second part, which is how to define a new business model in that case. Can you put yourself in the shoes of how it was at the beginning in terms of revenue stream and business model and how it evolved maybe? Yeah. So we were always super clear that given we were connecting neighbors to share food, i.e. relatively low value items, that Olio was only going to be able to make any meaningful revenues when operating at scale. And that is the case with many marketplace businesses. You need to get to scale before you switch on monetization. And especially when you've got very limited resources, we had just two developers for several years. We could have two developers trying to monetize a few thousand people, or we could have two developers focused on building the most brilliant, um, useful, sticky, engaging product that we possibly could and grow the user base and then monetize later. So we have always been later monetizing on our journey than perhaps many other businesses. I think one of the big advantages of not monetizing too early is that we would have wasted a lot of precious development time building monetization models that subsequently would never have worked. And we would have missed uh, monetization models that ended up coming our way on the journey. So to make that very real for you, we did not invest in monetizing the actual transaction itself. So when you when we first launched Olio, you could actually either give away the food item or you could sell it for at least 50% discount off of its original price. And so we could have invested time putting payments into the app and taking a commission on all the sales. But the reality is that for a hyper-local business, any in-app payments are highly likely to be disintermediated, plus also the commission-based mis- business model has mainly been eroded. It's kind of disappeared away from marketplace businesses. They tend to monetize in different ways now. And we would have missed what has become the real engine of monetization for Olio, which is our Food Waste Heroes program. So I need to kind of, I guess, explain another way in which we solve the cold start problem. So in the early days, our early adopters hated food waste. Therefore, they didn't generate much food waste. And we had hoped that local businesses like cafes and deliveries and bakeries would use the Olio app to bring customers into their store that they could then cross-sell and upsell. And we quickly discovered they were far too busy running their day-to-day businesses to be messing around, messaging with neighbors on an app. 
So we were a food sharing app with no food, which I'm sure you'll agree is pretty useless. <laughs> so how we solved that was we said, well, let's take the people who have loads of spare time and not much food based and match them up with the businesses that have no spare time and lots of food waste. And as a result of that, we created our Food Waste Heroes program. And so today we have 100,000 volunteers who we train on our food safety management system. And once you're a trained volunteer, you can claim a collection slot. And a collection slot is an opportunity to go to a local business, pick up all of their unsold food, take it back to your home, add it to the Olio app where your neighbors can then request it and pop around to your house to pick it up. And that solved the cold start problem because it brings lots of high quality supply into our marketplace. And people then were a bit like Airbnb. People tend to, on Airbnb, stay somewhere first before going on to list their own home. Similarly with Olio, people tend to pick stuff up first before going on to list their own supply. So that really helped us solve the cold start problem in a really, really scalable way. Because as we roll out, for example, across Tesco, we're redistributing from 2,700 Tesco stores, 1,000 Iceland stores. That takes Olio into every city and town across the country. So that helps the kind of zero to one piece, but also that has enabled us to start to monetize because at the moment, businesses are paying a waste contractor to take that food off to waste streams. And instead, they now pay us to make sure that that food is saved and redistributed to the local community. And we provide those businesses back impact reports um, as well. And so that is now how we generate the lion's share of our revenues. Now, when we first started Olio, and for the first couple of years, we would never have dreamed or imagined that we monetized in that way. And the incentive for the businesses, so they, they save the money, they don't waste the money on like businesses who, who come to collect their, their waste. But in that case, did you, for the pricing to pay them, are you less expensive than the, the solution they had before? Or is it only because of the, the impact? Did you manage to basically only sell the impact with the same price? So we aim to price match to the cost of waste streams. Now, the cost of waste mm -hmm. does vary from business to business according to how many locations they have, what types of surplus food they have, the quantities. But it is our objective to match The cost of waste disposal. And for the users who do these, like these heroes, what's the incentive for them beside, I guess, feeling good? Well, the feeling good is a very, very powerful incentive. So you, first of all, you go to the store, you get to see all that beautiful food that if it wasn't for you would end up being thrown away. So immediately you feel pretty heroic for rescuing it. You then get to give away that food that had a price tag less than an hour ago on it, you're giving that food away for free to your community in the midst of a cost of living crisis. So that's an incredibly fulfilling experience to have. And then we do also allow our volunteers to keep up to 10% of what they collect if they would like as a thank you. And for many of our volunteers, that's a really important part of the volunteering experience. For some of our volunteers, they're not interested in, in, in that at all. So, um, People volunteer for lots of different reasons, but we have no shortage of volunteers. Um, collection slots are hotly contested. We have many more volunteers than volunteering opportunities. That's fantastic to be able to reach such a point. In the advice you sent me, you said, don't live in hope of the, that the next product's feature or marketing campaign will be a silver bullet. 
Yes. Instead, focus on building an organization that can reliably deliver lots and lots of lead bullets. We always say you, you, from 10 experiments, there is one that will be a real leverage. So can you iterate a bit on that? How, how have you built that organization and, and how do you do that at the moment? Well, I think before you first build the organization as a founder, you need to really absorb that reality for your own mental health, quite frankly, because certainly Sasha and I spent several years living in hope of the silver bullet. It was going to be the next product feature, the next marketing campaign, the next fundraising round, the next hire we made. And we have learned through bitter experience that there really is no such thing as a silver bullet. And that is a really, really important mental adjustment to make. Because I think we live in a society that is optimized for and over-indexes on success. And instead, you've got to get very, very comfortable with failure and experimenting extremely quickly. So there's before you build any systems or processes, there's just a mindset that your organization has to have around that failing fast piece. And that means celebrating experiments that didn't work. You celebrate the learnings that you got out of that experiment. And then really it's about kind of empowering the team and encouraging them to just be thinking very laterally and creatively and having making sure they've got a bias towards action. Um, and we, in our company values, one of our company values is resourceful. And the sub-bullet points that sit below that company value really kind of step out how we want to have that learning and experimentation mindset, that bias towards action. Do you have an experimentation you can share that really unlocked a bit your growth? <sighs> Honestly, no. <laughs> Precisely because... <laughs> We have not yet had a single silver bullet. And actually, one of the major learnings that we've had is that market trumps team. So the closest thing we have had to a silver bullet was when COVID happened. So Olio grew fivefold through COVID. And that was because during that period of time, people became aware of the climate crisis at scale for the first time. People wanted to connect with their neighbors and their local communities for the first time. And so COVID was an enormous accelerant. And similarly, during that period of time, we rolled out our service with Tesco. And so that led to a really significant increase in scale of Olio. And they were both market-related things that resulted in that acceleration. Now, obviously, we'd done an awful lot of hard work ourselves. We'd expended a lot of lead bullets to make sure that we were we had a good product proposition that was in good shape, that was ready to receive the boost um, from the market. But no, I can't, I can't really point to a, a single kind of silver bullet that has led to a transformation of Olio. It's just been an awful lot of incremental initiatives and learnings just layering on top of one another. You mentioned the, the fundraising part, which was not the, the easiest one at the beginning, and it, I guess it's never easy. So th that brings us to the third part of this episode where we wanted to focus on fundraising of the female co-founded business. So what are the advice you can share here? Hey, just a 10 second break to tell you. I just released a free video presentation to explain the three key strategies I use to get 7,500 change makers 
to follow me on LinkedIn and to reach more than 1 million people this year with my posts. It's free. Just follow the link in the description to download it. The reality is, sadly, that it's extremely challenging to fundraise as a female co-founded business and you will experience the harsh realities that the data suggests. Only 1% of venture capital funding in the UK goes to female-founded businesses, 85% goes to male-founded businesses, and the delta goes to mixed teams. So the odds are very much stacked against you. I share that data not to depress anybody, but to make clear what the reality is. So then you can create a bit of a game plan as to how you're going to counter that. Now, part of the challenges that you will encounter are the conscious and unconscious biases that exist against female founders. Generally, the assumption is that you're not particularly commercial and that you're not particularly ambitious and that perhaps this um, thing that you're working on is is your project (laughs) rather than actually a, a business venture. So you need to work very hard through your deck through the ordering of your deck, the content, the communications, to do everything you can to dispel those unconscious biases that you're not commercial and you're not ambitious. And for us, a very tactical thing that we did that we found to be very powerful was actually we made the first slide be an image of Sasha and I, and then underneath that, the logos of the various sort of extremely credible institutions that we had studied at or worked at to really give us their seal of approval and to make it very clear that you need to listen carefully and take us seriously. And then you need to make sure that your financials and the commercials are really robust. They come earlier in the deck rather than later in the deck. And you will also find that as a female founder and indeed any uh, diverse founder, that you are generally asked what is referred to as prevention questions. So those are all the negative questions about everything that can go wrong and all the downsides. So what happens if Google and Facebook decide to compete with you? If you are a male founder, you will generally be asked lots of fun promotion questions. How big can this get to? How fast can you grow? What would happen if you had an extra million? Um, And the trick for a female or diverse founder who's asked all those prevention questions is to make sure that you answer a prevention question with a promotion response. And I highly recommend Dana Kanzi's TED Talk, where she shares the research about this and goes into more detail about how you can tackle these questions and these biases. And then the final piece of advice, I think, around that is to pick very carefully who you're pitching to. So we have found that we have had disproportionate amount of success pitching to female and diverse investors. What has been the hardest in the different phases that you had? Because now we are talking about a 7 million user app. We talked a lot about finding product market fit. When it comes to scaling, what has been the hardest in scaling and what are the advice on, on that side? An observation I've had on the entrepreneurial journey is that it's all about a series of false summits. So you think, when I achieve X, I'll get there and I'll be happy and things will become easy. When I achieve Y, this will happen. And the reality is 
the whole entire journey is challenging and can be stressful um, and fun, but it's just, you just get different challenges at different stages of your journey. So I can remember, you know, before raising our series A, just honestly thinking, wow, and looking at with total envy at those businesses that had achieved their series A and just thinking, oh, wow, life will just be amazing once we've done that. But you just open up another Pandora's box of problems. So um, I think just mentally, you just need to recognize that it is one long fight. It's not a straight line. It is extremely challenging. It's extremely rewarding as well. Um, And as you scale, you tend to move away, although not entirely, you tend to move away from less that sort of very, very early product market fit and very, very early how do we make the operations work to much more organizational structure, business model, uh, internationalization, people management, all those sorts of problems. Thank you. What is one thing about you that uh, we wouldn't be able to find online? Gosh, I mean, lots of things, I'm sure. Um, I'm trying to think of anything that would be useful and helpful. I do think there's something that <laughs> has been helpful for me on this journey and might be helpful for other founders is I've really embraced that growth mindset and also sort of the lean startup approach which if you haven't read it, immediately stop listening to this and go read The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Um, But I, a couple of years ago, realized that I could apply that lean startup mentality to my life more broadly, sort of not just to my business, that sort of test, measure and learn. And that has brought me enormous happiness. It's really helped improve my mental health, my physical health, relationship with my family, by having constant experimentation to figure out how can I balance all of these things to make them work. So yeah, I'm constantly doing crazy experiments to try and balance the requirements of Olio, the requirements to be a good mother, be a good wife, to be mentally health, healthy, physically healthy, to eat a good diet. I'm constantly running experiments. <laughs> I love to hear that as a growth marketer myself. Um, Tessa, thank you very much for, for your time today. What is your ask to the audience who is listening to, to this podcast episode? Where can they find you? Do you have anything specific right now? Are you recruiting? Are you looking for investors? So our ask would be, well, first of all, download the early app, but not only download it, download it and actually use it. Take the 10 seconds, that's all that's required to add a listing to the app food or non-food, you can be giving it away or if it's a household item, you can sell it as well. Or you can put up some stuff from your home that you're happy to have your neighbors pop around and borrow. Really, really encourage people because I imagine that many of the people who are listening to this are really passionate about the climate crisis and they want to play their part. I would share that Project Drawdown of just last week released some research that identified what are the top 20 actions that individuals and households can take to solve the climate crisis. And in position number one, narrowly beating plant-based diet is reducing food waste. So I'd really, really encourage all of your listeners to take the 10 seconds to share their spare food or other household items with a neighbor. And if you work at a business or encounter a business that is throwing away food, then please do get in touch with us because we would love to rescue and redistribute that food to the local community. And you can find us on oleoapp.com. That's our website. And on socials, if you just search for Olio, you'll find us on all the platforms. 
Thank you very much for your time today. Congratulations again on your impact with Olio and wish you a great weekend, Tessa. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. Hey, if today's episode was useful, share it with your entrepreneurs' friends so that we can all have a bigger impact on this planet and give it a five star on Apple Podcasts. That will make my day. Thanks so much in advance. Have a nice day.